all from one family on stage. Their first gig, The Cars. It didn't go in that we could actually be meeting our producer or that this could be a major record deal for us. If you feel the emotion in every song, you give across the emotion of the song. You have been a wonderful audience and we will remember this. We will be back. When you're put in a situation where you have to perform, where you have to deliver, no matter what, something happens. That's why we're doing it. We're doing it because we love it. Hi, I'm Jason Flom, lifelong music executive and discoverer of the cores. And uh, I guess that's a title I could wear very, very proudly. You're listening to Cores Cast. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome to episode eight of Cores Cast. In this episode, we're speaking with the incredible Jason Flom, with a career spanning decades in the music industry, which all started by him putting up posters for Atlantic. As a trainee, he worked all the way up to heading up A&R and eventually becoming the CEO. On this journey to CEO, he ended up finding some of the industry's best-known names. The name that we're most interested in is that of The Cause. It was such an honour to talk with Jason, who really was the first person who heard and recognised the uniqueness in the sound that the band had made and then agreed to sign them back in 1994. As with previous interviews, I began the interview asking Jason about his background prior to meeting the cause, and he was more than excited to tell me of this pivotal moment in his career of finding the band. Enjoy. I guess I need to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, it's awesome that you're doing it. I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you so much. I've started each episode asking, where did this start for you? Your backstory all the way through to working at Atlantic and then obviously being instrumental in signing the cause. Where does that backstory begin for you? Well, it began with my failed attempt at becoming a rock star, right? So that was my idea in in high school. I wanted to play sports, but I have fast hands and slow feet. So that meant I couldn't make the soccer team or the, you know, basketball team or the football team, um, much to my disappointment. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm great at ping pong and sports where you don't have to, uh, where you don't have to run, but, um, cause I have quick reflexes, but so the other obvious choice was to play the guitar. Mm. Um, and so I played the guitar, smoked a lot of pot, uh, grew my hair to an a, absurd length. Um, and, you know, had these dreams of becoming a rock star, like, you know, the, the people that I idolized, you know, Steven Tyler and, you know, it's Led Zeppelin and it was that era, right? So um, Queen, the whole thing. But my dad had told my brother and I, my dad was a very um, amazing story uh, in his own right. He was a son of immigrants who were, you know, in and out of homelessness, had no money whatsoever. And, mm-hmm you know, ended up uh, after he, make a long story short, after he got out of the army, he wrote a letter to Harvard Law School and said, um, I don't have any money and I don't have a college degree, but I am a GI, uh, which is what they used to call the troops. Um, and, and I'm the best thing since sliced bread. And if you let me in, you won't regret it. And they gave him a full scholarship and he wow. ended up becoming one of the most um, respected lawyers in the country or the world and he um but he told my brother and i he said you know do whatever you want to do try to be the best at it but just make the world a better place Mm -hmm. so he said that's the only thing that matters so um 
I knew by the time I turned 18, I realized I was never going to be the best guitar player. I practiced all the time. I wore an SG standard around my neck all day long. It just wasn't going to happen. So I happened to get a trainee position at Atlantic Records when I was 18 years old, putting up posters in record stores. And you know what? If I could help other people become rock stars, then I could sort of live vicariously through wow. them. And so, but I had a staple gun and some double-sided tape and a bunch of posters. So I had to figure out a way to get myself in a position to do that. So I, well, long story short, I, I managed to finagle my way into the A&R department. I found an artist who became a hit called Zebra. They gave me a job. Uh, Twisted Sister was the next one I championed. And the next thing you know, uh, I was off to the races. Um, and so after, you know, many years had gone by, by the time I bumped into the cores, and I'd had a significant amount of success with artists like Tori Amos and White Lion and Skid Row and um, even uh, Stone Temple Pilots and so many. I won't bore you with the long, long list, but Not the boring, fact it's is, a good list. <laughs> oh, good, it's a good list, yeah. Um, so I'd had, you know, I'd, I'd now been sort of made the head of A&R at Atlantic Records, and that's when on that fateful day. I bumped into the cores and their manager. Yeah, there's, thank you. That's incredible, incredible to hear. Um, your your story reflects a lot of others that were around at this time in and around the music industry, and especially in relation to this album, where it just seemed to have been, again, I wouldn't say rags to riches, but there's at least a, a dog-mindedness of, I'm, I'm gonna go and get this, um, and then the outcomes just happened. The, the course credit you as uh, the first person that had listened to the album and their music and genuinely seemed to like it. Do you have a, a first memory of recollection of how you and the cause or you hearing of the course first happened? Well, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you asked because it's, it's one of my favorite stories. Um, so this particular fateful day, I was sitting in my office at Atlantic and I get a call from the receptionist uh, who says there's a band here. Uh, they flew in all the way from Ireland. They asked to meet with the president of Atlantic, but he's not going to meet with them. And I guess she felt badly. And I said, oh, yeah, what the hell? I mean, OK, I'll I'll meet with them. And I I will confess I had very low expectations. You know, <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't know what to expect. But, you know, I can tell you I more expected the Dropkick Murphys or something than I did the cores. And, um, and with all due respect to the Dropkick Murphys. But um, so, and I didn't expect them either. Let me take that back. I expected to have, you know, a, a, you know, a disheveled bunch come in with extremely limited musical talent um, and hopefully make quick work out of this meeting, but at least be respectful of the fact that they had flown all the way from the other side of the ocean. So in walks Andrea, Caroline, Sharon, Jim, and John Hughes, the manager, mm. and they are dressed in their, you know, full regalia as if they're about to go on stage. Yeah. John, of course, very dapper gentleman yeah. wearing a suit, you know, and a tie. And I was sort of like, okay, this is not what I anticipated. But, and then they proceed to put on their demo tape, which I still have. Um, it's in a box in this closet. Um, I could rumble around and find it right now. 
and I'll be happy to send you a picture of it. Um, I haven't played it in many years. I, I imagine it would still play. These things do deteriorate over time because they're cassette tapes. But nonetheless, um, they popped this thing in. Yeah. And it was Love to Love You. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm trying to remember the other songs that were on there, but I remember that one was on there for sure. I can pull it out if I remember which box it's in. I just moved. So it's in one of these boxes. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I can find it and, and we can get back to that. But the fact is, I was like, I was, I, I was almost in shock because A&R, I think most people who aren't in the business think it's relatively simple, but usually it's a lot more complicated than this, right? Often you hear a new artist and the presentation is very rough. They don't have the hit songs on the demo yet. They haven't maybe written their best stuff. Um, in this one, I was like, there must be a catch. Like this looks too easy to me. This, these songs, mm -hmm. these, these, in, these incredible looking people, all four of them, you know, Jim, not a bad looking guy. Right. Oh, I mean, wow. you know, I'm just like, they look like stars. Their songs are excellent. I'm like, so literally, Simon, I said to myself, this seems too good to be true. Yeah. So I, I walked down the hall. I still remember this. Or I called down to get our, I don't know why I, I asked her, but our head of marketing at that time, her name was Vicky. I asked Vicky if she would come down the hall and, and sit in here and listen and just just check my own, you know, mm. um, you know, see if I was maybe just have made, you know, I don't know. And so she came down and she was like, nope, um, I can't find a problem with this either. And I was like, okie dokie. So, um, so for some reason it dawned on me now, oh, let me, let me just give you a little more history here. So Dave, Dave Doug Morris was the president of Atlantic at the time. He was my boss. Doug had recently made a deal with David Foster who was, well, you know, he's obviously one of the most legendary record makers of all time. And he was at the height of his powers. And um, David had a, a label called 143 that had just, um, just, ink was just drying on their deal with Atlantic. So I thought, wow, this could be perfect for David to produce. I'm saying this because it might not have occurred to me had not the fact, if not for the fact that he had just recently, you know, made this arrangement with Atlantic mm. so so I called David he happened to be in New York um at a studio of might have been Hit Factory the, the the band would remember I think it was Hit Factory which wasn't far from our office and he agreed to meet the band so I think they went directly from my office over to see David and then David called me and said this is fantastic you know i'm going to produce it now what he did behind the scenes he went to doug morris and said i'll produce this but i want to have it on my label you know which was mm -hmm. a division of atlantic 143 atlantic right and then just to draw the, the full circle of this it was only months later that i was given the opportunity to start my own uh, label mm -hmm. which i called lava lava because it's hot beautiful and you know, and it destroys everything in its path. And it sounds like love and means clean in Spanish. You wanted to have a short name so you could actually see it in the tiny print on the series. Anyway, so Lava it was. So 
I called David and I said, David, now that I have my own company, could we do this as a one, four, three lava Atlantic thing? And he didn't hesitate to say yes. And so that's how, that's how that came to be. Wow. That's so, just the timing of that and the, the ability for it to see that as a, as an opportunity and, and go, hang on a minute. And then everybody else to be agree in agreement to to want to get this ball rolling as soon as possible. Um, I'd spoken with a couple of people that said that um, David specifically wanted something of a river dance flavor, um, and that, that that side of things were was exactly what he was after. And then to have suddenly um, a demo tape played to him that was um, produced by Bill Whelan in their demo form. It seemed to just be fate. This this year is my box of um, cassettes. Yeah, I will now um, find the course cassette. And it, this will be uh, the have, very one that you were handed. Is that correct? Yeah, this will be that one. Um, in, I have the original Tori Amos cassette in here. That's incredible. I have um, other little historical Stone Temple Pilots. This first one is in here. It means so much you're taking the time to do this. This is amazing. Oh, it's, you know, it's fun. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just ironic. It happened to be like literally arm's length from where I'm saying, oh, here's the original White Lion cassette. Oh. That's hilarious. Twisted Sister cassette. <laughs> this, is, this is great. This is a trip down memory lane for wow. sure. Let's see. It's going to be right here. I know it's in here. Most people don't remember the first Tori Amos record was actually Why Can't Tori Read, but that's not a cassette. That's not a demo. That's an album. Yeah. Okay. Where are you, Cores? Now we're going to find the here's Edwin McCain's first cassette. It's mixed in with my band's cassette from when I was in. I was trying to make it as a. So there's more to come from this story, though. But I'm glad I'm glad we're doing yeah. this. This is fun. I can't believe it's was it 25 years ago? Is that where we're it's doing this? 26 year since release. So you're looking at 27 years ago. You were handed this cassette. Ah, found it. Oh my God! This is it. This is the original cassette. It says "Love, Love to Love You." You can see it there. Oh yeah, I don't know really, because that was worked on in the studio but never released. Ah, okay. Yeah, toss the feathers, secret life, and closer. Um, so it was on a it was on a uh, cassette from Polygram Music Publishing. I guess they were signed to before I met them. Exactly. They had a, a publishing a music publishing deal. So you've got you've got a, a demo copy of Closer before they've met with David Foster. Mm -hmm. That is completely new news to me. What will I see if I look closer, 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 My smile could warm your frown. There's more to me than what you see when you look closer, closer. Yeah, I remember. 
uh, going out to David's studio uh, when they were making the first album at his home in Malibu. He had a palatial estate there. The house was up on a big hill, and then you would go down, um, I don't know, at least 100 feet of elevation from the studio to the house, maybe maybe more, uh, maybe I'm understating that. Um, but anyway, yeah, and the lawn was so big that I remember going on the lawn with him and hitting like four irons from one side to the other. I thought that was funny. You know, as someone, you know, who grew up in, um, as someone who grew up in an apartment, you know, yeah. for me, this is, uh, you know, because um, being a, a lifelong New Yorker, that's, that's how that goes. So, yeah, so it's quite interesting. So David went and made this wonderful album. Um, and uh, it was, you know, an awesome experience just to, you know, be in the studio. I don't spend a lot of time in the studio, but to be in the studio with him and with them and, mm. um, you know, watch him work his magic um, and, th and them theirs. The interesting thing is that, as I'm sure you know, the real breakthrough came when I did the... Um, these were the days when tribute albums were a big thing, right? Uh, people were making all sorts of tribute albums and having great success with that. And, and when I say that, I mean that they, dude, someone would take a legendary artist and they would have other contemporary um, artists cover the songs yeah. uh, of this legendary artist. And, um, and it, was a, it was a relatively simple way to sell 500 or 1,000 or a million copies. Back in those days, it was like, <laughs> nothing so i had done uh carol king tribute album tapestry tribute albums yeah, i did trap tapestry revisited Beautiful. uh with some fantastic artists and then i thought let's do um fleetwood mac tribute totally and so we did and i asked the chorus to cover dreams or no i don't remember how they decided on dreams honestly i i, I don't remember if that was their idea <laughs> oops sorry um he's getting a little excited no so um <laughs> So my dog's name is Freddie Mercury, by the way, just so um, he's, he's singing. He um, so now he's on the podcast. So anyway, um, so dreams, I, I, you'd have to ask them uh, why they decided to do that song. I believe it was their decision. But the interesting thing was that David didn't do that track. A, guy, a, a producer named Oliver Lieber did that track. And Oliver was a guy I went to high school with, uh, made, you know, one of the most gifted musicians I've ever met in my life. Um, he was one of the reasons why I stopped playing the guitar because he came to my house one day. We actually made a demo tape together. Um, but I remember him coming to my house today. He was a drummer. Now, his dad was Jerry Lieber of Lieber and Stoller, right? So, you know, so it, it was in his blood. But, um, but nonetheless, he came to my house one day. He's like, oh, you got a guitar? I haven't played guitar and in years I just picked it up and I was just like sitting there in awe like oh this is not I mean it was depressing it was it was inspiring but depressing so but anyway Oliver went on to produce uh, Paula Abdul two of her giant hits off that first album mm -hmm. um, and you know he had done an artist named Beth Hart for me um, which was she was a wonderful wonderful singer and we had a pretty big hit with a song called L.A. Song. I thought to put him in touch with the chorus and he produced Dreams. So all of this 
was fine, but then serendipity struck. And what happened was, giving credit where credit was due, there was a guy working at Atlantic in those days in the dance music department named Rich Christina. Mm. And Rich was a terrific guy. And he comes to see me one day and says, do you mind if I have somebody remix the song Dreams off of the Fleetwood Mac record? I said, sure. You know, who do you have in mind? He says, a guy named Todd Terry. Oh, so yeah. Todd Terry. And Todd Terry. I didn't you know the name. I wasn't really into the dance scene so much. I don't even remember if I knew that he was one of the hottest guys at that time. But Rich did. And he had this vision. And Todd did the remix. And the remix became the thing, at least in America. Now, yeah. I can't speak for overseas, but in America, that remix of Dreams, oddly enough, was the thing that unlocked the, mm -hmm. you know, the Pandora's box and allowed people to discover that they loved the course. It's just amazing how that's come full circle. Because, um, yeah, the early, early editions of Talk on Corners don't have Dreams included. Well, because it wasn't on it. No, it wasn't on it. It was only on the Tribute album. Yeah, um, and then later... And then I think the, Oh, did we? And then, oh, and then we moved it on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was smart. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I could take credit for that. I don't remember whose idea that was, but it doesn't matter. But yes, that would have, that would have been an obvious thing to do because it was the song that had everybody talking about the chorus. So why not put it on their album as well? So yes, I'm glad to hear that we did that. That shows um, that we, we were paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> Doing the right stuff. Um, and then obviously Talking Corners was then re-released again. Um, but as a remixed by basically entirely remixed by Todd Terry um, album to huge success, huge success. Right, good. That's right. I you know I don't remember these things because um, you know it's so many years ago. But and then I want to give you another little tidbit, mm -hmm. which no one else would know this. But so Rich, I always remembered that he had you know waved this little magic wand and and really made a big impact. He's not a guy who likes to take a lot of credit for things, um, but I remembered. And years later, um, I was no longer at Atlantic. Um, I think I may have been at Virgin Records by then or whatever. I was running Virgin Records for a time. Mm. But I, Rich called me. He had been let go from, uh, from whatever job he was at. And I said, you know what? this is a guy who really had an impact on my career. I took it upon myself to call everybody to set up interviews for him. Mm. And by the way, I thought I was doing them a favor as well because he's a very capable guy. And he ended up getting a job at Sony Music Publishing. And when I started my label, um, so I started Lava Records originally with Atlantic, which was a joint venture with Atlantic. And ultimately I sold it to them and became the chairman of Atlantic Records. But then after Virgin and Capital and that whole set period of my career, I ended up joining forces with Republic Records, which was the number one label in the business. And I, you know, they were always breaking something. Every time I was breaking something, they were breaking something. So I was like, you know, if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them. So I joined Monty and Avery and that team. And within months after I started, I get an email from Rich Christina. And that email was a link to Jesse J. So to talk about full circle, payback's wow. a bitch, right? So he, wow. yeah, so he, he sent me this um, link to Jesse J and I put that thing on and I was like, what 
on God's green earth am I listening to here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like she's, look, she's arguably the greatest singer in the world. And I, it didn't take long for me to say this is, I mean, and that became the first big hit on the new Lava Records. So, you know, it's funny how these things come around and go around. That's just, yeah, completely circular. But, the, you know, uh -huh. it's, I guess, being in, being in that position and working with those that ultimately you're friends with, you know, there is an understanding there where you're not trying to, you're not there to pull the rug from anyone else. You're, you're there to promote and find and help succeed amazing music and amazing artists. It, it makes sense that that sort of stuff would happen. It really does. It really does. Yeah. And, you know, once a good music guy, always a good music guy, I guess. I mean, Rich is, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was right uh, mm. to, to, to trust him um, and right to, uh, you know, back him. And, you know, and, you know, like I said, I couldn't have foreseen that it would, um, that it would come back in such a profound way. And, you know, and the truth is that Jesse is one of the artists I'm most proud of ever having signed because she's just a brilliant mm. art, a singer and performer. I mean, there's no, there's no getting around it. you develop that and it's it is a talent just knowing when something's right because obviously you know calls walk into your office they sound good they look good but what was it that made them set them apart and made them stand out to you can you is that pinpointable is there something you can actually touch on or is it just a feeling is it a everything's just the stars are aligning and i just have to say yes uh yeah i mean listen the you know, one of the people I most admire and one of the most profoundly successful people in the history of the entertainment business was David Geffen. And I heard him describe it as instinct. It's mm. just instinct, right? And I don't have a better way to describe it. Um, you know, the, you know, the business now has become a business of, you know, there's a lot more science in it um, than there ever was in terms of so much data is processed you know with you know between youtube and the dsp spotify apple tiktok etc and so much of anr now is analyzing that data to try to figure out which is logical right i mean yeah but but that you know it, it's an odd time in the music business because 
the days of finding an, an artist who has nothing going on, you know, and just has a brilliant musical talent, but doesn't maybe have skills at social media or doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's a little depressing, honestly. Um, I don't want to sound like a, like a, an old guy or, and, you know, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, wistful or even bitter, but you know, yeah. Anyway. So, so that's how, um, yeah, that's how things really got started at least, uh, you know, at least as far as the, this continent is concerned, um, you know, obviously it took a lot of fantastically talented executives um, around the world and, you know, to, to, to turn them into this global phenomenon that they became. But at the end of the day, let us not lose sight of the fact that it's their talent. You know, I mean, we uh, in the music industry are lucky to work in this field and jobs that we love um, with creative people and everything else. But at the end of the day, the greatest executive can't make a hit out of a record that's not a hit and can't make a star out of someone who's not a star and can't make a, an arena headliner out of an act that doesn't have the natural gifts. So, you know, but it, it is still like pushing a boulder up a hill and, um, you know, now these days, of course, 60,000 songs come out every day. Like, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's a daunt, it's an, it's a miracle. When, when an artist goes from, you know, performing in living rooms to performing in arenas, it is a miracle. There was a legendary screenwriter in Hollywood, I'm forgetting his name now, who had the famous quote where he said that in Hollywood, nobody knows nothing. And, um, you know, the truth is it's guesswork, right? We record executives are wrong most of the time, right? So I learned from, you know, one of the most legendary executives in history, uh, the great Ahmet Erdogan, mm -hmm. who taught me, if you're not 100% sure that the artist is wrong, you go with their vision. And so that's been a good rule for me to live by over the years. Um, and, you know, the truth is, like I said, this business is very humbling. We don't, we don't know. We get surprised. And there's so many stories of, you know, the Beatles being passed on or, you know, the, the sing. And, and by the way, it works both ways. I mean, there are many artists who, who they're, they're, the song they hated the most became the song that defined their careers. You know, um, I mean, look, I had Sugar Ray, I had signed, you know, back in the day. And, you know, when they did fly, Mark hated it so much, he quit the band you know so it took two weeks to get him back in the band <laughs> and of course that became the song that really launched them into stardom so um you know it's a really fantastically interesting business right i mean the, you know monks chanting became number one right so yeah. you know and then there's you know now there's k-pop and there's all these things who could have seen this stuff coming you know it's just uh so the public not only the only the public gets to decide and at the end of the day their their taste is right and we just we just guess mm. is there any other sort of cause related things that come to mind that you you think oh he hasn't spoken about that yet or anything that would be worth knowing i mean the only other thing i would add is that it was really great fun to be involved um, and, you know, I particularly d developed an affinity for Ireland and Irish culture and, um, you know, ended up working with Clanid and mm -hmm. also with uh, Bill Whelan, 
And so um, we've got to spend time in that beautiful country. And uh, so I feel a very, um, a very good connection with, uh, with the, the Republic of Ireland. And, uh, you know, I hope to get back there soon. And, um, and as far as the Corps, um, uh, if they're listening, <laughs> I'm very proud of you guys, of all of, of the four of you and, and you too, John. Cute. Very, very cute. Yeah. I, I, I can't not, I can't talk to you and not talk about the work you do. And I'd love to give a space in this episode, if you want, for you to promote what you're doing. The work you're doing is very evidently worthwhile and life-changing. Yeah, um, thank you for asking. The fact is that I've been a music executive since 1979. I couldn't call myself an executive back then, but I've been working in the music business since 1979. And it's, I've been uh, very, very lucky uh, yeah. to have the career that I've had. Um, but my passion and my calling for the last 28 years has been reforming our criminal justice system in America and ending this disastrous failed experiment called mass incarceration, mm-hmm. which is the, um, we, we now know thanks to the work of brilliant um, scholars like Michelle Alexander, that it is really just a continuation of slavery. And so um, as part of that work, uh, I got involved very early on with the Innocence Project, which many people listening have heard of, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And I became um, obsessed with their mission of freeing innocent people from prison. I became the founding board member, not the founder, but the founding board member of the Innocence Project. So the first board member there. And I've been uh, very, very taken by the people themselves who have been through hell and back, been to hell and back, like literally been sentenced to death, life without parole, served decades in prison for crimes they had nothing to do with, right? Um, and come out with a bounce in their step, uh, you know, a smile on their face, um, you know, a, a, a sort of an almost ethereal grace about yeah. them. And so I decided to start this podcast uh, five or six years ago called Wrongful Conviction, because I thought if we could tell the stories in the voices of the people who lived them, yeah, then we can help to change the hearts and minds of people who ultimately may end up serving on juries. And have them be not so quick to believe what they're being told. And this is a problem that exists all over the world, by the way. It's not a, it's, it's, a, it's particularly pronounced in America because we have so many people in prison. Mm. So the numbers here are insane, but um, it's not like wrongful convictions don't happen in Ireland or, you know, Pakistan or, you yeah. know, um, or Germany or anywhere. So changing hearts and minds and changing the system is what I set out to do. Now, I couldn't have anticipated it. it's now been downloaded 30 million times. It's led to, uh, it's helped to lead to exonerations of a few innocent people, it's been a factor in certain cases, the case of Daniel Villegas and Ronnie Long and Lamont McIntyre. And it's also helped to inspire uh, politicians to pass legislation to propose and pass legislation changing the system to make it a little bit fairer and better for everyone. So the stories themselves are remarkable. We've even covered the famous case of Peter Pringle, an Irish man who was sentenced to death. He came within 10 days of being hung for 
a crime he had nothing to do with. Um, we've had the uh, famous Birmingham Six, you know, from England. Mm -hmm. We've had Amanda Knox, who's like a little sister to me. She's been on my podcast uh, several times now. Um, so, you know, we typically focus on cases uh, uh, of American injustice, but it is not uh, only an American problem. And the podcast uh, does cover cases from around the world as well. So yes, I, I, it's really, um, it's my passion. I will keep doing it uh, until every story uh, that can be told has been told. I mean, I'll never get to all of them. Unfortunately, there's an endless stream of wrongful convictions, but yeah, I wanna create a living memorial to, mm -hmm. you know, to honor the experience of these incredible souls yeah. who have, like I said, uh, uh, been to hell and back and, and come out with it with a you know with this incredible attitude in fact I posted on my Instagram this morning it's at it's Jason Plum and I just posted from somebody who I helped uh, to free from prison in Virginia he wrote uh, on his Instagram I love when people that have been through hell walk out of the flames carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire so yeah there you go that's what inspires me and um, you know luckily the music business provides a provides me a living so I can do this in my free time. So check out the podcast. Wrongful Conviction is the podcast. Um, and hit me up on Instagram, DM me. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. Wonderful. I guess there's only one thing left to say, and it's thank you so much for taking the time. I feel like it's a real honor to be able to talk to you and to take some of your time, especially that time away from the other work that's so meaningful and is so needful that you're doing. No, this is great. I, I'm I'm really happy you did this. I think this is something that will live forever, and it's a, it's a great uh, it's it's a great thing. I'm really glad, like I said, that you're doing it. I'm looking forward to hearing this thing. Thank you so much. Cheers, Jason. Okay, talk to you later. Bye. A huge thank you again to Jason for agreeing to be part of Causecast and giving us a an amazing glimpse into that first momentous meeting with the band. For more information regarding Jason's work towards criminal justice reform, please follow the links given in the show notes. Also included in the show notes is a photo of the very tape he was handed in that first meeting back in 1994. A special mention of thanks needs to also go out to Freddie Mercury, Jason's dog, who, as I'm sure you heard, gave his incredible vocal talents freely for a portion of this episode. As well as following Coursecast on all social media, which I'm sure you already do, I've also created a Discord channel to discuss the episodes or anything relating to the band, including fan stories. Feel free to head over and introduce yourself. An invitation link can be found in the show notes also. For the next episode, I've mixed up something really special as we step back into the studio and talk with another legend of the music industry. Until then, thank you for listening, and you've been listening to Causecast.